from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Generally, the concept of somebody who had relevant mental health issues was if you're schizophrenic and obviously to the world incapable of of addressing reality, that would be be considered. But mental health has a spectrum. And the idea of exploring anything other than absolute, you know, insanity uh, is related to people's understanding of their actions is relatively new and honestly still developing. I need to introduce you to this other woman who needs help and came in with Amber and I remember looking at her and going, that makes sense. (laughs) And so that's really when I became introduced to Amber as I know her now. And just to be clear, what is being requested is clemency, it is not exoneration. That's an an important point. There's this idea of like, if we don't kill her, then you know, we'll be telling other people that it's okay to do this because we don't we don't carry out our sentences. I'm Elaine Cha. In 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty. Some 46 years later, the state of Missouri has executed 90 people, all of them men. That may change on January 3, 2023, if Missouri executes convicted murderer and transgender inmate Amber McLaughlin. A little later in the show, we'll be joined by Amber's friend, Jessica Hinklin. You may know her name because in 2018, Hicklin won a landmark transgender rights case in a lawsuit against the Missouri Department of Corrections. She transitioned in prison, as did her friend Amber. Joining me in studio to talk about Amber McLaughlin's homicide conviction and her scheduled execution is Ryan Krull, staff writer for the Riverfront Times. Ryan, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for having me, Elaine. You've been reporting deeply on Missouri's executions and your recent investigation has focused on Amber McLaughlin. Give us the background on her case. What was the crime that led to her conviction for first-degree murder? Sure. Uh, So there's some macabre details, but a a summary of the case would go something like this. And um, uh, McLaughlin was in a relationship with Beverly Gunther, a woman um, in her 40s. That relationship soured in the summer of uh, 2003 uh, McLaughlin uh, burglarized uh, Gunther's home in October of that year. And then the following month, Miss um, Gunther was abducted in Earth City, Missouri. Um, McLaughlin uh, stabbed her to death, uh, then left her body um, kind of by the Mississippi River in the Patch neighborhood of South St. Louis. So as you're explaining this, I do want to take this opportunity to note that as we continue this conversation, we are talking about someone convicted of murdering another human being, a woman and a former romantic partner, as you've mentioned. And even as we discuss what is happening around Amber McLaughlin and her case, it's important to acknowledge the very real pain and suffering endured by the victim of that crime, Beverly Gunther, as well as those she survived by. Now, Amber and her attorneys have asked Governor Mike Parson for clemency and they focused on the way that her mental health was addressed at trial. What is the case Amber's attorneys are making? Sure. So there's a lot to, un- uh, to unpack there. All these um, death penalty 
appeal cases. They always seem very complicated and multifaceted. Um, one really sort of key point in this case, though, is that in McLaughlin's um, a, you know, initial trial in the penalty phase, so after guilt had been found, but whenever it was time for the jury to determine what the appropriate punishment was, you know, life in prison or, or the death penalty, uh, a few unusual, you know, now salient things happened. And just two of them really quickly. One was there was supposed to be testimony by a psychiatrist named Keith uh, Caruso as to McLaughlin's, you know, mental health, both before and during the uh, the, the murder. Um, McLaughlin's attorneys talked quite a bit about how this testimony from Dr. Caruso was forthcoming. They really sort of foreshadowed it to the jury, I suppose. But then in the last minutes uh, of, of the penalty phase, some academic dishonesty came out, uh, or, or McLaughlin's attorneys became aware of this academic dishonesty in Caruso's history. They chose not to put him on the stand. Therefore, all this information about McLaughlin's mental health um, that the jury was told they were going to hear, they didn't actually hear. And the one other really important thing is that um, the jury ultimately deadlocked anyway on the issue of uh, life imprisonment versus um, the death penalty, and it was the judge who determined um, that McLaughlin should get the death penalty. That was actually, to make even things even more sort of complicated, that was actually overturned in 2016, um, but then the that was reversed again in last year. So it's had a long, complicated history to arrive at where we are today. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to you know the the request for clemency, how has Governor... Parson responded to that. So, from what I've heard, it seems like these things always just go to the last minute. Um, uh, the only thing that I have heard from, uh, I guess, Parson's camp is that they look into all these um, clemency applications with great detail. They have a team of lawyers that review them, um, and then they render what they think is the appropriate decision. But I don't know that I've heard. There could have been something, maybe you know, like this morning or, or yesterday that I'm not, that I'm not aware of. But I haven't heard anything very definitive other than that. So knowing that there hasn't been anything definitive um, announced or shared, does that align with what we know about Parsons' position on granting this type of mercy? Oh, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, as far as I know, I, um, I don't, I'm don't. i most familiar with these death penalty cases that come out of St. Louis County, but uh, I'm pretty sure that no, uh, there hasn't been any clemency given to a, uh, an individual in death penalty death by penalty. Mike Parson. Now, Amber's death penalty case is among um, those handled by former St. Louis County prosecutor Bob McCullough, and you just alluded to that. And as part of the reporting that you've done um, through River City Journalism Fund, you've been investigating McCullough's role in Missouri's death penalty for some time now. How does this case Amber McLaughlin's case fit in with your reporting on how this one prosecutor impacted statewide the application of the death penalty. Sure. So folks who have looked into it um, have seen that during McCullough's almost 20-year tenure as um, um, the uh, prosecuting attorney for St. Louis County, he was a very high user Um, of the death penalty, and a a disproportionate number of death penalty cases came out of St. Louis County. I think I said 20 years, it's actually almost 30 years that he was um, in that position. Uh, And the reason for that's kind of interesting. One, um, 
there was uh, in a lot of you know rural Missouri areas you might have um, a desire for the death penalty but perhaps the resources won't be there sort of a poor underfunded um, prosecuting attorney's office in places like Kansas City and St. Louis you have the funding there but not the desire you have a you know someone like Kim Gardner who's not going to seek the death penalty so St. Louis County was in many ways kind of the sweet spot for the death penalty at both the the the, the desire the political will at the time uh, as well as the resources to carry out those expensive, expensive cases. And why do you think that that context is is important for us to remember as we are learning about this particular case and waiting to see what happens? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I, folks who are critical of the death penalty oftentimes focus on just how arbitrary it is in the sense it's sort of geographically arbitrary. The same crime in St. Louis City or uh, let's say um, a, a more rural county in Missouri uh, will lead to life imprisonment, whereas that same crime in St. Louis County, at least for a time over the last 30 years, was more likely to lead to capital punishment. Nothing to do with the crime itself, but to do with these kind of larger macro forces. We're talking about the scheduled execution of Amber McLaughlin, which is planned for January 3rd. We need to take a quick break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Ryan Krull, a Riverfront Times staff writer who has been following developments around McLaughlin's execution. Such developments include efforts being made to spare Amber's life. To speak to those efforts, let's bring in another voice. Jessica Hicklin, a formerly incarcerated transgender woman who came to know Amber McLaughlin and her story well when they were both inmates at Potosi Correctional Center. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Absolutely, and thank you for having me, Elaine. Mm -hmm. Now, you met Amber McLaughlin while you were serving a life sentence for a murder you committed as a teenager, 16 years old to be exact. And Amber was in her 30s when she was sentenced to death and became an inmate. But your experiences do have some overlap. Tell us about the connection that you made with her. Absolutely. Um, Before I do, I do want to sort of acknowledge something that you said earlier, and it's important. Um, Even as we talk about these issues... Um, I do want to acknowledge that there are people that have been hurt by Amber's actions and my actions as well. And so anything I say is not meant to diminish or take away from the fact that people were harmed by our our actions. Thank you. Um, That said, um, I knew Amber before Amber was known to the world as Amber, um, but we didn't interact a lot. Um, We lived in the same spaces and, and mostly because Amber was very reserved. But one day I... Another trans woman that I, I had been helping in her journey in life um, showed up with Amber and said, hey, I need to introduce you to this other woman who needs help and came in with Amber. And I remember looking at her and going, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> and so that's really when I became introduced to Amber as I know her now. Mm-hmm. And 
probably one of the first times I saw the legitimate smile on her face was when I gave her a hug and said, we got you. Okay. And what was it that happened to Amber you know, that her mental health wasn't taken into account in her trial? That is something that Ryan has talked about already. Is that situation common for people that you have met and known in prison? Mm, very common, especially if you're talking about a case that's 20 years or farther back. I mean, there was generally the concept of somebody who had relevant me mental health issues was if you're schizophrenic and obviously to the world incapable of, of addressing reality, that would be, a, be considered. But mental health has a spectrum. I mean, mental health conditions have a spectrum. And the idea of exploring anything other than absolute you know, insanity uh, is related to people's understanding of their actions is relatively new and honestly still developing. Mm -hmm. And to, to what extent do you think it's important that people understand um, what the mental health background mm -hmm. of Amber was before she became Amber and what it is now? Mm. Interesting question. Um, well, a couple of things. As a general statement, when somebody has a mental health condition, like a diagnosable mental health condition, it's relevant to the, the decisions they make in life. And so before we talk specifically about Amber's, it's, it's fair to say if you have, if you're suffering any type of mental health condition, then obviously we have to question how much you understand your actions. Related to Amber, you know, I've had this conversation with a few other folks. Um, I don't know all of her mental health diagnoses, but I do know she carries a gender dysphoria diagnosis, um, which is a heated topic in today's uh, political environment. But at the end of the day, it is a diagnosable anxiety condition that affects your entire life. And so I, I always like to make this clarification. Um, Amber being trans is not re relevant to her decisions, her case, things like that. The fact that she suffered from a known anxiety condition that was undiagnosed, untreated, and at, not at all presented to the jury is relevant. In 2018, Jessica, you won a landmark transgender rights case in a lawsuit that you brought against the Missouri Department of Corrections, and that is relevant to our conversation now. Tell us a bit about that case. Sure. And I'll add a distinction. There was two sets of plaintiffs. The other one, or sorry, two sets of defendants. The other one was the medical provider at the time, Corizon, who were, were also involved in the case. And um, it, was, it was about a two, two and a half year um, fight where I had, very similarly, I had a diagnosed mental health condition of gender dysphoria and a recommendation for treatment. And at that time, the state of Missouri said, it doesn't matter what the medical science says. It doesn't matter what all of the medical associations say. We will not let this treatment happen. And so we went to court. And after a little more than two years, the uh, the federal district court here in St. Louis issued the order that said, you know, one, this is a cruel and unusual punishment to deny this treatment. And two, the state must allow the medical providers to provide access to hormone therapy, access to gender-affirming canteen, and access to, to permanent hair removal. Mm -hmm. So... And when you talked about meeting Amber formally for the first time, you mentioned that it was the first time you'd seen her smile. You know, how beyond that do you think um, that case that you were describing impacted you and other trans inmates, uh, inmates that is, in Missouri? Mm -hmm. um, that's, in fact, the case is how I ended up meeting Amber in this way. Um, so once I won the case, I gained access to the things that my doctors 
decided that I needed. And I think my aunt categorizes this best. She explains that she would come visit me at Potosi Correctional Center. And she said, you know, for 15 years, I would always have to lean across the table just to hear what you were saying because you were so reserved and so in your, bo- in your, in your shell. And then you started being known in the, w- the world as the woman that you are and started receiving treatment. And she says, you're this outgoing, boisterous, happy person that tries to spend every day giving back to the world, which I hope is true. Um, and so that's sort of my experience of other, other trans women. I mean, there are many that are diagnosed and still suffering um, lack of treatment because for bureaucratic reasons. It could be a whole other segment. But um, the after the case came down, it was common for other trans folks to approach me and say, okay, how do we go through this process that was established by the case? And that's how Amber came to me, was a friend brought her and said, hey, I need understanding how to change my name, how to come out in the world. And every time I would sit down with Amber, many of the other trans folks, um, and have those conversations and help them start that process towards their truth, it was like meeting a whole new person for the first time. Now there was these people with joy and people with hope in the world and people who realize that you can live in the world as your true self and it's a beautiful thing to do. And this is for people who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Joy is not, you know, hope often. Uh These two things are often not um, emotions that we would think about um, under those conditions. In, In a recent Riverfront cover, a Riverfront Times cover story, you are quoted um, discussing how you became what you referred to as a, a sort of mom to a lot of the girls who are coming out while in prison. And clearly, you know, what you've been describing also aligns with that. And Amber was one of those girls. What challenges are these inmates facing as they transition in an environment that is as controlled and potentially dangerous as prison? Um, so there's really kind of two categories of um, obstacles that they face. The one is obstacle to care. You know, and that is still very much a thing even after the case. There's all there's not a absolute hardline denial, but there's a lot of obstacles that are put in the way to accessing care. So um, there is this ongoing frustration of there's a road that's in front of me. There's a way to treat me. I'm supposed to be on that road, and yet I can't. I'm still stuck. And so there. There's a general situation, general pervasive anxiety around hoping to be able to access care and then having trouble with it. And then there's also dealing with your living environment. And it's very, I don't even know, I don't even know how to begin to explain what it's like to be like a, the only woman in a room full of a thousand men and living there, um, which is, and vice versa. There are trans men in the women's prisons. And um, to be able to navigate both at the same time is a constant stress. It's it's depressing. It's it's frightening. And for many trans folks, just like folks in the free world, uh, every day is very uncertain. Mm-hmm. You don't know. You don't know. Are you going to face violence from the person you live with? Or are you going to face violence from the person who's supposed to protect you? And that is that is a reality in and out of prison, and it's a reality in prison as well. Given those realities, and also in consideration of what you had shared earlier, making the acknowledgement of harms done, Mm -hmm. um, why have you been so invested in in this advocacy for clemency Mm -hmm. for Amber? 
uh, I would be involved this way for any human being because that's just it. At the end of the day, for whatever mistake Amber has made, um, it does not warrant taking her life. That is not, it is not justice. It does not, you know, there's, you get into a long conversation about the four reasons that prison exists, and it doesn't apply to any of them other than sheer retribution. And if we're, as a society, trying to move forward and be compassionate and expect us or each other to contribute, we can't make the example of retributive killing. And so Amber's a human being. She's kind. She's got a soft heart. And yes, she did a horrible thing and made one horrible mistake. It doesn't set the world right to repeat that mistake from our side. And just to be clear, what is being requested is clemency. It is not exoneration. Yeah. That's an, an important point. Now, there's this idea of like, if we don't kill her, then you know we'll be telling other people that it's okay to do this because we don't we don't carry out our sentences. And that it's it's a very important point, Elaine, that if she's granted clemency, she will still spend the rest of her life in prison. Mm-hmm. So you have had a chance, Jessica, to know not just Amber but other inmates waiting for misery to put them to death. And that includes Brian Taylor, who is scheduled for execution just a month or so after Amber, and on, that's on February 7th. What have you learned from your relationships with people like Amber and Rahim? That as much as I think I understand the world, I don't. Because all of, you know, I, my background is that I, I first got involved in doing litigation myself and as a, para, a prison paralegal in 2001. And my job was to be the go-between between people who were facing execution status. Like they already had a date and the library. And so I have seen, somebody told me the number last night that like 80 people were executed by the state of Missouri during my time in Potosi, which means I knew personally about 68 of them if I counted the number correctly. Wow. And I can tell you every last one of them was a human being. They made a horrible mistake, but 20 years later, which is generally like we're talking about Amherst 20 years later, they are different people who try and com- contribute to the societies they live in. They have people that love them. They are just human beings that made a poor decision at one moment in their life, and every last one of them, I lived with. And it's this, you know, there's this idea of like we're 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 putting to death this horrible monster, and I'm going. I was a trans woman in a men's prison. I was the, like one of the highest risks for violence was to happen to me where I lived, and. Never in my 26 years in prison did a person who was on death row do one thing violent to me. That is important perspective. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Ryan, as a staff writer um, for the Riverfront Times, something that you've done is to seek permission to witness Misery's execution um, of Amber McLaughlin should it happen um, on January 3rd. What are you hoping to gather from that experience? Yeah, I guess our intentions there are really just this is a very consequential and important. I, I would say it's very important that there are there's transparency, that there's sort of public watchdog eyes on this um, execution if it happens. Um, and I, I think at the, the Kevin Johnson execution, there was several media slots that were unoccupied. So it just seems in the interest of transparency and accountability, you'd want to have um, as many sort of independent, you know, journalists, observers there as possible. 
Jessica Hicklin is a formerly incarcerated transgender woman who is advocating clemency for Amber McLaughlin, whom she came to know well during their time as inmates at the Potosi Correctional Center. Ryan Kroll is a staff reporter at Riverfront Times. We've been talking about the scheduled January 3rd execution of Amber McLaughlin, who, if put to death, will be the first Missouri woman to die by death penalty since the U.S. Supreme Court's reinstatement of capital punishment in 1976. Jessica and Ryan, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.